go. Welcome back, my friends, to the podcast. And it ends. We're so glad you could ascend. Come ascend. <laughs> you want to climb up? You want to ascend? Come inside. Come inside. Uh, I am Mr. All Spice. <laughs> but you can call him Joe. All right. And I'm Mike. Uh, yeah. And uh, my flick of the week is going to be the Coen Brothers 2009 film, A Serious Man, starring uh, Michael Stolgard. A serious man? Yes. Okay. Go. What the fuck is that? I don't know. All right. So, in a prologue, a Jewish man in an unnamed 19th century Eastern European shteti tells his wife that he was helped on his way home by Reb Groshkover, whom he has invited for in for soup. She says Groshkover is dead, and the man he invited must be a dibbuk, which is like a... Doppelganger. It's like a spirit that, you know, was crying for help. Uh, Groshkover arrives and laughs off the accusation, but she plunges an ice pick into his chest. Bleeding, he exits her, their home into the snowy night. Now it cuts to 1967. Uh, in, in, in that year, Larry Gopnik is a professor of physics living in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. His wife, Judith, tells him that he, she needs to get needs a get. You know what? Fuck that. Let me talk about the beginning part first. <laughs> the beginning part, that ain't me. I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> uh, the aliens are coming. Um, uh, get is a divorce settlement, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it is. Um, so the whole beginning sequence, um, it like if it has any foreboding to the tone of this film, maybe. But otherwise, I can't tell what the fuck the beginning of this movie has to do with anything else uh, because none of the characters are connected to any of the characters in the film that I'm aware of. And just the the whole weird, but it, it's still intriguing as fuck because when you're watching it, you know you're like, what the fuck is you know this the, the guy's got this ugly wife, you know, with that fucking the the visible mustache, you know, and, right? And uh, and she's like dead serious about this guy being a fucking dibbuk, and and the guy comes in, he's all jovial and shit, you know, he's in a good mood, and then she's like, you're a fucking dibbuk, and he's like, no, no, there's just a misunderstanding and stuff, and then when she plunges the fucking ice pick into his chest. I mean, he's like, you know what? Maybe I've worn out my welcome. But first he starts laughing like crazy, like, like, ha ha, you got me, you know, kind of thing. And, and you're just like, what the fuck? But it's so well done that you're like, you're just glued to the scene. Like, where the fuck is this leading to? And so the dude gets up and he just walks out into the snowy night. And that's it. That's the end of it. And you're like, what? what? Okay. God damn it, Cohen's. So, yeah. So then, yeah. He just walks off into the snowy night. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Larry Gopnik, they cuts to fucking present day 1967, right? So, uh, Larry Gopnik is a professor of physics living in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. His wife, Judith, tells him that she needs a get so she can marry widower Cy Abelman, with whom she has fallen in love. Meanwhile, their son, Danny, owes $20 to an intimidating Hebrew school classmate for marijuana. He has the money, but it is hidden in a transistor radio that was confiscated by his teacher. Daughter Sarah is always washing her hair and going out. Larry's brother, Arthur, sleeps on the couch and spends his free time (laughs) filling a notebook with what he calls a probability map of the universe. Uh, The brother's played by Richard Kind, if you know who that is. He's got a very big mouth. Richard Kind is George Clooney's best friend. He also does a lot of... uh Voices for different cartoons. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. He's 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 a, he's a very funny actor. Um, he was in um, he was in that Paul Reiser show. Oh, Mad About You. Yeah, yeah. As as Paul Reiser's friend. Yeah, and I uh, like yeah. He did a voice for one of the um the goofy um, 
uh, Grasshopper in uh, Bugs Life. Correct. The yes. annoying brother, right? So yeah, uh, Richard Kind. He's, yeah, he's in this, and he's fucking yeah. He's a he's an he's an oddball character. Um, so this is one of those movies where like with this whole opening like sequence where you you're introduced to Larry Gopnik, who's played by Michael Stolgar Stolbark. Um, Michael Stolbark was the 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 undercover Russian scientist in. Um, um, the fish fucking movie. You know, uh, the name of the... What was it called? The... the Holy shit. Fish Called Wanda? <laughs> Nemo? Um, oh, my God. The, the, we just won Best Picture. We saw it. We wrote a, I wrote a review for it. it was uh, oh. Uh, Guillermo del Toro movie. Yeah. I'm blanking on it, the too. The Fish of the Sea. <laughs> the, uh, the Fish Under the Sea dance. The creature um, from the Black Lagoon, but not. Yeah. Um, the, the the sound of water, the color of water, the the fucking the shade of water. God damn it! The shape, <laughs> the shape of water. There we go. It was such a what, good movie. You know what's funny is yeah. there's um to cut from this for a second. Yeah. So Oculus is burning up the air, burning up the uh, uh, commercial airwaves, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know they're they are spamming their new VR helmet, wow. where you can buy for like 199 bucks. And you can, like, I can sit on my couch, you can sit on your couch, but we can be in this virtual world watching, like, sports and whatever else yeah. and interacting with each other. So if I turn and look at you, you can have your own avatar. I'd have my avatar, right? That's cool and creepy <laughs> at the same time. It is. And one of the things is uh, they had a person watching The Shape of Water in a bathtub, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And she's like, I'm never getting out of this bathtub again. <laughs> Which is creepy in and of itself. Yeah. <laughs> so Michael Stolberg. He's a, he's a very good actor. He's very um, he usually plays a very subdued character, um, and in this film, he is even more subdued. Like he just like all this shit just starts happening to him, and like it's just the next. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? What's the next thing? And he just keeps taking it and taking it, and, and he's like, and like it gets to a point where he's just like, what the fuck is going on? To you know, but anyway, so this scene where his wife sits him down and starts talking about how. She wants to marry this widower who lives next door because she's fallen in love with him and that, you know, things have changed in, in their marriage. Um, she tells him in a way like that he should have known this from the get-go. He should have understood. And he should right now already be accepting it, even though she just broke the news to him. And any kind of response he has, he has a question about or anything, she gets extremely defensive and makes him look like he's the asshole. And I'm like, I almost want to yell at my fucking TV screen. That, right. that, that's how much it's pissing me off, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, so he's dealing with that. He's dealing with his son, you know, who's, who's getting high all the time with his classmates and, and he's going to Hebrew school and, and, uh, and then his, you know, his daughter doesn't do anything except, I mean, literally in the movie, his daughter only just fucking, she just always washed her hair and bullies her, the, the, the his son, you know, she's always hitting him and saying, what the fuck, you know, and, and just, yeah, she's like, um, Stan's sister in, uh, in South Park, you know, okay. are you my headgear? You know, <laughs> shut up, Stan. Yeah. <laughs> so as Randy's like, Shelly, yeah, how you doing, Shelly? All right. <laughs> <laughs> so Larry faces an impending vote on his application for tenure, and his department head lets slip that anonymous letters have urged the committee to deny him. Clive Park, a South Korean student worried about losing his scholarship, meets with Larry in his office to argue he should not fail the class. After he leaves, Larry finds an envelope stuffed with cash. When Larry attempts to return it, Clive's father threatens to sue Larry either for defamation if Larry accuses Clive of bribery 
or for keeping the money if he does not give him a passing grade. So he's stuck in this fucking position where it's just like he's got this envelope full of money, but no one, the, the, no one wants to acknowledge that they gave it to him. But yet they, it's like, it, why is it his fault that the kid fucking failed his test? You right. know what I mean? And he's, so he's stuck in this position. And so he thinks that this guy, this father, this Korean father, is the one who's sending um, these note, these letters to the school about you know denying him tenure. Right. And and making it look like he's a bad person, right? And so um, while while the father's there, the Korean father's there confronting him in the driveway at his house, um, the, uh, Stahlberg has his next-door neighbor who's like this fucking guy who goes out hunting all the time with his kid, and he's very, uh, very private. Okay. And um, when the Korean dude's there at, on his property... The neighbor walks up and looks right at Stahlberg's character and goes, well, is there a problem here? Is he harassing you? Like, because it's 1967, so I'm assuming this guy probably fought in the Korean War. Right. And like, so if he sees any Asian person, he's just like, what the fuck? You know, so um, it just creates a level of tension that's, you know, really weird. Um, so at the insistence of Judith and um, Cy, Cy the guy that she's having an affair with, Larry and Arthur move into a nearby motel. So... Okay, yeah. Judy, Judith implies the couple's bank accounts. Empties. Empties the bank accounts, leaving Larry penni- penniless. So he enlists the services of a divorce attorney. Larry learns Arthur faces charges of solicitation, solicitation and sodomy. His brother keeps getting arrested because he's doing like this gambling and stuff. And then they, they offhanded mention that, yeah. So, Prostitutes. Yeah. So um, <laughs> this is another scene that fucking pissed me off. So he meets... Cy and Judith at this at this um, diner, and they're sitting there. And of course, she sits next to Cy, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they're still living together and everything, she sits next to Cy so that they can explain to him that it's better for him if he just moves out of the house and into a hotel, right? And then so Larry says, "Why don't you just fucking move out and live with Cy since you guys are going to get married?" Oh no no no, that would look bad. That wouldn't look good. That wouldn't look good for anybody. And then they look at him like, "What's your fucking problem?" Get the fuck out of the house and go live in a hotel. Right. And him, he just doesn't want to deal with it. You know, he's still confused about it. He's still in shock about the whole thing that's happening to him. So and I'm like, you're feeling for this guy. Like, what the fuck? is like the whole world is like collapsing in on this guy, you know? But he's also at the same time not standing up for himself, really. Um, all right. So, <laughs> so, yeah, he moves into a hotel with his brother, right? So Larry turns to his Jewish faith for consultation or consolation. Um he, con- he consults two rabbis, but a synagogue's uh, senior rabbi, Marshak, is never available. He's, like, extremely fucking old, like, 90s old. Right. Right? Um, the first, a junior rabbi, who's played by um, uh, How- Howard from the, the you know, uh, Big Bang. Yeah. All right. All right. So, um, where is that? I, uh, I think you went to... Right here. Simon Helberg. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, by Simon Helberg. I'm going to scroll back up. I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> Howard. So, 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 yeah. The junior rabbi advises Larry to change his just to change his perspective on what's going on with him. Just change the way you look at it, right? So then the second, the second rabbi, he goes to, and it's like different age levels, right? right. So you have the young one who's in his twenties, then you have the middle one who's like in his forties or fifties, and then you have the super old fuck. So the guy in the middle, he says, um, he just tells Larry about this uh, this parable about the dentist. And it's a weird fucking story. And he goes into the visual of it, and it shows that the story where this guy, this guy who's a dentist, he has a um, a um, a goyim or a go- yeah, goya or whatever come into his his uh, his you know his his practice, right? And you know, a goya or whatever is a non-Jewish person, right? So 
the, um, he has he's working on the guy's teeth. The guy has um, Yiddish um, writing on the inside of his teeth, inscribed in there, like fucking like like almost like um, uh, chiseled into his teeth or something, right? That would be inscribed. Inscribed. Right. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So and it's really fucking weird, you know, and it doesn't make sense and. And the guy thinks it's like you know it's supposed to mean something and all this stuff. He so it spends like five minutes de- showing the story, and then it cuts back to him telling you know finishing and telling Larry. And Larry's like, "What the fuck does that have to do with anything?" And then, and then the guy just makes some comment, you know, like whatever, right? So it just it didn't make sense. It was weird, you know, like because no one's understanding what he's going through, and so they just instead of them like trying to really really help him, they just go on what you know like their own personal shit, so they can just get out of the situation real quick and move on to something else, right? Um, so then, then this weird, this weird moment, this weird coincidence. Larry and Cy, Cy's the guy that's having the affair with his wife. Um, they're both involved in separate, simultaneous car crashes. Larry is unharmed, but Cy dies. At Judith's insistence, Larry, she wants Larry to pay for Cy's fucking funeral. So at the funeral, Cy is eulogized as a serious man, and it's fucked up because she wants him to pay for the fucking guy's funeral that was fucking his wife. Right. Right. And it's like, who the fuck are you? And everyone's making him look like he's the asshole for this, right? All right. So while her husband is away for uh, way on business, Larry calls on his neighbor, Vivian Samsky. She's the next door neighbor. There's a scene earlier in the film where she's standing, or he's standing on the roof adjusting. He, there's a bunch of times in the movie where he's adjusting the fucking uh, antenna on top of the house, uh-huh. and that's the only like like his son will call him. He could be in the middle of this fucking ordeal and his son will call to interrupt something and like say like have the receptionist kind of say it's an emergency and he'll go what is it son what is it and he goes yeah um f troop is it coming in on the tv you know and he's like what you know like who gives a shit you know he's like fucking dealing with life-ending stuff here but his son you know gotta fix f troop right so anyway he's on the roof one scene where and he looks down to the neighbors and this chick that you know he goes over to vivian She's fucking new sunbathing, right? Right. And he just stares for a good good minute or two, you know. And then he comes to his, you know, things and he walks away. But anyway, so you can tell that he's got a little bit of think of her because she's kind of hot, you know. She is hot. And uh, so um, he calls on her. He goes over there to see her while her husband's gone. Um, and she's been, you know, sunbathing naked. Uh, she introduces him to marijuana. They start smoking, you know, joints together. And it's the first time he's ever done it. And he... um. And, you know, he's having a good time, and then, you know, just he gets interrupted by something that happens at home again. His son fucking interrupts because he wants him to adjust the goddamn F antenna. Troop. Yeah. F-troop is on. Yeah. Got to fix it. Yeah. So, and he's like, he fucks up any any kind of moment he has to calm himself or feel better about his life. Right. Gets always interrupted, right? And so, later on, he has a dream that he's having sex with her, but then uh, it just, it turns into a fucking other nightmare, and... and it's it just, you know, it like it went from like him fucking her to him fucking Psy or something like that. It was really weird. Or no, Psy starts like beating the shit out of him and he grabs him and he goes, you know, I'm fucking your wife, right? Because <laughs> it's never said in the entire film that he's fucking his wife. It just says that she's going to leave him for her. And then, right. Yeah. So, but you know, he probably is, right? So, um, <laughs> so Larry's proud. Um, Larry's proud and moved by Danny's bar mitzvah. Um, this the to, to explain to uh, the people that are listening. Um, he is literally reading this fucked up Wikipedia page. Yeah, and none of it makes sense. But that's how the movie because yeah because it's not flowing from one into the other. Yeah, like you know, it turns into another nightmare. And then Larry is proud and moved by Danny's bar mitzvah, where it should actually say at Danny's bar mitzvah. And you know, and look, and look. 
Um, that's the genius of the Coen brothers is that the, sometimes their story, the, the storyline, the, the linear or the, the, just the, the, the path that this, the film takes is unpredictable. So the whole time you're on your fucking toes watching it. Well, uh, yeah, but what I'm saying is that the person that wrote this stuff yeah. should have edited it better. Yeah. And I, I'm Ron Burgundy, so I, you know, I, what? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy, so I end up reading it, you know, word for word. Um, so Larry's proud and moved to um, when he's at Danny's bar mitzvah, you know, proud that his son is, you know, becoming a man, you know, right? Um, unaware that his son is under the influence of weed. He's high as fuck, <laughs> which is funny because his son starts freaking out mentally, like, well, you know, all this shit's happening on because he can't, he's supposed to sing. Um, he's supposed to sing a right, song. He's, he's and, supposed to do the, yeah. the Jewish rap yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, and he can't, and he's like, fuck, it took him forever. Like, he's got all these these rabbis and stuff standing around him, like showing him where to read from and all this stuff. And, you know, finally he does. Uh, during the service, Judith apologizes to Larry for all the recent trouble and informs him that Cy respected him so much that he even wrote letters to the tenure committee. Okay. He's the one that wrote all the fucking bad letters. Right. So Danny meets with Marshak, a brief encounter in which Marshak only quotes Jefferson's airplane, somebody love. Um, so yeah, Danny. Danny gets sent because he's in trouble for you know for um, getting caught. He go. He finally gets sent to the old man, and the old man. All the old man does is read back the lines from fucking somebody love, and then some of the names of the band members. And then he he has the radio and he hands it to you know he hands it back to Danny, and he says good boy because right. Danny has a um, he had an ear earbud piece for it like one just one ear for it kind of thing. Uh, and that's it, kind of to show that the, the, the this this old ass rabbi has nothing to to give the world at all. He's just fucking done, you know. Uh, so Larry's department head compliments him on Danny's bar mitzvah and hints that he will receive tenure. Uh, the mail brings a three thousand dollar bill from Arthur's lawyer, and uh, Larry decides to change Clive's grade from F to a C minus just to avoid all the bullshit, right? You know, the the, the Korean kid. Right. Whereupon Larry's doctor calls, asking to see him immediately about the results of a chest X ray. And Larry keeps saying, well, I'll, I'll come later. And he goes, no, dude, you need to come now, which pretty much indicates he's fucked. Something really bad's coming around. He goes, I can't tell you on the phone. Um, at the same moment, Danny's teacher struggles to open the emergency shelter as a massive tornado closes in on the school. And that's it. That's how the fucking movie ends, man. It's very um, ambiguous. You know, it's up to interpretation. Um, it's well done. It's intriguing. It's a Coen Brothers movie. It, it, they, you know, even when you don't understand it, you're still entertained by it, you know. And um, it, my son, my son Kendrick, came in about um, I'd say about a third to close to halfway halfway through the film, and he watched the whole thing with me. He didn't turn away from it, and he's like, "Dude, this." He goes, "This is a good movie." <laughs> he goes, "He goes, he goes." I I wish I'd seen it from the beginning. Um, and it is, it is, it is a very good movie. Um, it was up for um, Oscar for best picture. Um, most of the cast is unknown to uh, Coen Brothers films. Like, there's, I don't, I can't recall really anybody that was in this film that you would normally see in a Coen Brothers movie. And you know how they like, they like to use a lot of regulars. And uh, I think they purposely had um, unknowns or roughly unknowns for the most part. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know if you're supposed to really get anything out of this movie other than just seeing what this fucking guy goes through. And it, it's, it's sad, but it's, also, because it's it's Coen Brothers' dark comedy style, uh-huh. it's funny. It's fucking hilarious, dude. And, and so, uh, it's on Netflix right now. I, I highly suggest you watch it, especially if you like dark comedies, um, because yeah, it's a really good movie. All right. All right. So, um, 
All right, I got a little bit of trivia here for you. Uh, the Coen brothers stated that the opening scene was nothing more than a little short that they made up, that they made up to get the audience in the proper mood, which it does, um, and that there is no meaning behind it. Which they could be lying, you know. You know, you never know, right? They could no, have, there's no meaning behind it. I, yeah, I mean, but it could also, though, in their minds, like they know, but they don't. They don't ever need to let anybody else know. No, there's no meaning behind it. It's it's written right here. Um, the Coens themselves stated that the germ of the story was a rabbi from their adolescence, a mysterious figure who had a private conversation with each student at the conclusion of their religious education. Ethan Cohen said it seemed appropriate to open the film with a Yiddish folklore tale or folk tale, but as the brothers did not know any suitable ones, they wrote their own. <laughs> All right. All right, next one. Uh, Red Owl was a real Midwest grocery store chain with several stores in the Twin Cities area, including Knollwood Plaza and St. Louis Park, about two miles south of, uh, two miles south of the Cohen family home. The Red Owl mentioned in the film is identified as being in Bloomington suburb uh, some ways to the south of St. Louis Park. The significance of Rabbi Nochner's anecdote is that Sussman's investigation of the teeth mystery takes him on a drive in the middle of the night that would have taken about an hour and a half round trip, far enough to seem just a little obsessed, but not too much. The Red Owl sign used in an exterior scene in the movie was a genuine antique, which unfortunately was accidentally dropped and destroyed after filming. All right. Um... No line gets a bigger laugh when the film plays in Minneapolis than when Larry's divorce lawyer is telling him, hire Ron Meshbesher to represent him. Meshbesher is a real person, the most prominent criminal defense attorney in Minnesota for 40-some years. The guy, in the words of other lawyers, thus, um, I mean, the guy, he's the guy, in the words of other lawyers. Uh, Thus, Larry learns that Arthur is more trouble than he'd imagined. This is a slight anachronism as Meshbesher's reputation was not yet established by 1967. To make the significance of the recommendation more apparent to the contemporary and non-Minnesota viewers, the script inflates the amount of Meshbesher's retainer a good bit from what it was in the late 60s. The scene was shot in the Minneapolis office of Meshbesher and Spence, and the address of the retainer envelope at the end of the movie is the actual address of the firm. <coughs> the voice of Dick Button... The, Co- the Columbia Record Club employee who harasses Larry on the phone is supplied by actor Warren Keith. This is the second time he has appeared in a Coen Brothers film, playing a character heard only on the phone. He also supplies the voice of Riley Deffenbach, the GMAC finance officer who calls Jerry Lundegaard in Fargo. Huh. I got seven cars here, but no Vins. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, the tornado bearing down the town at the climax is a factual event. There was a tornado outbreak in southern Minnesota in 1967. And lastly, the Coen brothers' original idea for the picture was as a short film about Danny's stoned bar mitzvah and his meeting with Rabbi Marshak. All of the other content in the movie grew out of that sequence. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah um, like I once said, um, I, I highly recommend this movie. Um, I would probably give it, shit, I, I, an, at least an 8 out of 10. At least, an, yeah, at least an 8. So, um, a serious man. Check it out. All right. Uh, that's all we got. You got anything? Nope. You got any questions? Nope. Well, fuck you then. Fuck okay. off. All right. 